I happened to catch a program on NPR concerning a growing interest in what's referred to as No Gift Christmas. Several journalists and listeners chimed in on the advantages as well as the complications of developing non-consumerist traditions at this time of year. Some pointed out benefits to the environment. Others spoke of establishing family habits and relationships that weren't dependent upon heightened expectations around getting more and more stuff. There's a lot of moaning about the seasonal advertising that now begins before Thanksgiving. And we're awash with messaging 24-7 about how we're supposed to find happiness in getting or giving lots of things. And what a necessary component this is for our national economic vitality. Pandemic puts an interesting twist on this since we can't spend our money so freely on travel. At one point in the radio program, a call-in mother reported becoming consumed with providing for her children, quote, a perfect Christmas, unquote. And by that, she meant the whole Megillah, gifts, decorations, parties, whatnot, and hoo-ha. She was captured by an addictive desire to create an ideal outcome for her kids and extended family. A very tall order. Also, impossible. And quite honestly, from the point of view from the manger, completely missing the point. I say that gently, being a parent and grandparent myself and wanting good outcomes for the people I love. Here's a little historical factoid you may not know. Back in the middle of the 17th century, about the time the Wesley brothers were founding their Methodist movement in the States, the Puritans of New England actually outlawed the celebration of Christmas. Imagine that. As Professor David Taylor recounts, they had come to believe that, quote, the feast of Christmas involved a great deal of intemperate behavior. During the long winter nights, people feasted in excess, got drunk, engaged in wanton sex, rioted in the streets, and barged into the homes of the well-to-do and demanded that they be given the best of the pantry. Christmas back then looked more like a frat party gone horribly wrong. It was far from sweet and mild. Taylor continues, one public notice warned its citizens, the observation of Christmas having been deemed a sacrilege, the exchanging of gifts and greetings, dressing in fine clothing, feasting and similar satanic practices are hereby forbidden with the offender liable to a fine of five shillings. Because of the Puritan influence, the United States Congress regularly met on Christmas Day until 1855. Public schools met on Christmas Day in Boston until 1870. That would surely have put a damper on our pre-pandemic patterns for two weeks of travel right about now. Well, we're a long, long way from those days. Much of what we now take for granted as part of our holiday traditions came about during the Victorian era, when the Christmas we now think of nostalgically became emblematic of warm family times that everyone aspired to. I'm guessing that the mother who called in about wanting to create the perfect Christmas for her children had that nostalgia in mind. The idea of the perfect family, the perfect outcomes, the perfect gifts, and so forth. 
You know what I'm talking about here from all those holiday cards with the picture-perfect kids and moms and dads and the Christmas letters recounting the exploits of the past year. It's a variation of the Facebook and Instagram fictions people post, packaging their public personas in masquerade, hiding the more complicated aspects of their real lives. We all do this to some degree, right? We all seek to present well, especially at this time of year when happiness seems what everyone's after every which way. Now, I, I'm no Scrooge. I like some of the nostalgic trappings of the season, and I'm somewhat invested in creating festive hospitality in our home, especially for my now-grown children and our circle of friends and grandkids. And I want the church well-appointed with lots of candles when the, when the time comes. But I let go of perfection a long time ago, not only for my sake, but for everyone else's sake as well. As a friend of mine remarked this week, he was looking forward to the annual fight he has with his wife while decorating the Christmas tree. No one would have thought a manger in a barn was the perfect setting for giving birth. The more we make it pretty and drowned in impossible expectations, the further we move from the opportunity the occasion presents. Here's the simple but obscured message. Jesus comes speedily to us in our need and emptiness rather than our fullness. The more we engorge on attempting to fulfill impossible expectations, the further we move from the manger with its meager provisions. Our gospel lesson this morning tells a joyful but humble story about two pregnant women who delight in their condition. Young Mary and her older cousin Elizabeth celebrate the gift of life. But let's be clear that these are women of meager means. They have each other which is not nothing, but they have no place or power. As far as the world is concerned, they're nobodies from nowhere. And as we've pieced their stories together, we learn that Mary and Joseph have a complicated relationship precisely because of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph turns out to be a stand-up guy and will remain her betrothed, but given their poverty, they must endure the kinds of humiliations that all poor people must endure, like giving birth in a cattle shed, eventually becoming refugees as they will flee to Egypt to save their lives and the life of their son. That's how the story unfolds for that first perfect Christmas. We know all about refugees today, don't we? about parents fleeing desperate circumstance for the sake of their children, we could spend some useful time considering our immigration and border issues through the lens of these Christmas stories and learn a thing or two about holy hospitality. But, but for now, I want to stay with Mary. Did you catch the topsy-turvy content of her famous song? In Latin, it's called the Magnificat and has been the source for thousands of musical settings. We've made it beautiful over the years, but its content is revolutionary, and it comes from the mouth of a pregnant teenager who has a clear and radical understanding of her actual circumstance and the world's power arrangements. My soul magnifies the Lord, she sings, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The perfect Christmas Mary dreams up is very different from the one rampant in our culture today. God comes to Mary in her poverty, not her wealth, in her emptiness, not her fullness, in her need, not her perfection. Unfortunately, our tendency is to get this exactly backwards. Humble is the true byword for Christmas. Humble, empty, open-hearted, and open-handed. Those are the qualities, the gifts, we might bring to the manger this year. That's my suggestion to you. Open hands and hearts. I hope to see many people manger side in our glittering candlelit sanctuary Christmas Eve. But if you're unable to be with us and will visit another stable somewhere else or share with us virtually as you are now, or we'll skip the stable altogether in favor of another sort of holiday festivity, whatever it is you do that night, try not to promise yourself something that cannot be delivered. Someone is bound to let you down, not measure up, or otherwise thwart your best laid plans. But when that happens, and it will, because that is the fickle nature of imperfect people, be very, very glad for the opportunity to remember how it went down for Mary and Joseph. The awesome gift was given to them in their humility and poverty. And so it has always been for those who would seek and find God.